Penny University, a podcast with value. Penny University presents 2019, Our Investigation, Our Truth. What happened to the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshots? A mother determined and almost broken, fulfilling a promise to her son lost. A friend lost in the contradictions between the crew he knows and the crew that was distorted. What happened in Yarnell, Arizona at the end of June 2013? Episode 5, Frustration, Heartbreak, and Anger. My name is Deborah Fingston. My son, Andrew Ashcraft, was lead sawyer on Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshot Crew. I'm Doug Harwood. I'm a Prescott firefighter, and I worked on Granite Mountain and had some friends on that crew. And we don't have Shelby tonight, so I certainly hope you guys are patient with our recording. We want to thank you so much for all your thoughts, prayers, and comments that you guys have been emailing us. If any of you have specific questions, though, we want to make sure we answer those for you. Just please um, email us. If you want to just say hi, also email. Our email is pennyuniversity at protonmail.com, and we love hearing from you. We want you to know that this is a very raw experience for us, and sometimes our emotion and words might not be appropriate for little ears. Please be aware when listening, sometimes either Doug, probably more than likely me, um, might slip up with some um, unappropriate language. We've covered what occurred on June 28th, 29th, and June 30th, up until the crew died. We're not really going to review what we've stated so far. Uh, If you would like to get caught up, please listen to episodes one through four. We're certainly going to refer back to some of the information, but we won't be covering it in any great detail. We'll be discussing important facts that we know and what we have experienced. In In previous episodes, we've tried our best to follow a tight timeline, but from now on, we're going to be working more with subject matter. At this point, I want to bring up Um, safety officers. Um, I see command, now Doug, it's made up of a lot of different positions and a safety officer is one of those positions at an IC command. Yeah, usually it's it's definitely a position that can be filled on any any fire, yeah. Okay, but not on the type three um, safety officers come in more at a type two situation. Usually that's where I've seen them, type one, type two fires, um, but they could put them anywhere at any time. Okay. And safety officers, along with other positions, are ordered when the order goes out for the Type 2 crew? Correct. Well, the safety officers, there's two safety officers. And for the Yarnell Hill fire, the one safety officer was ordered by the Arizona Department of Forestry not to go to Yarnell, to stay at an airport down in Phoenix. And the second safety officer did not show up on the fire until 4.15 Sunday, June 30th. Now, he claims he didn't get his orders till noon, and he was in Prescott. And Prescott is about 45, 50 minutes away. So for some reason, after he got his orders at noon, it took him four hours and 15 minutes to get to the fire. And I believe that's... Um, another one of the issues that happened with this fire. What can you kind of help me a little bit? What does a safety officer do? What do you know exactly? Well, 
the way they're set up um, for wildland fires, they're basically um, a division um, supervisor that sort of um, realm, but they can stop any anything going on at any time on the fire, and they can go in any division, in any group, anywhere within the fire, and they have the authority to stop anything. So they they're see watching off for the firefighter. Right. Correct. That's their job. Correct. Is the safety of the firefighter. Um, and I believe that that's an important position. And when I brought this up in other, um, when, when I was talking with people, when we had an eight-hour session through litigation, and I brought that up, it was, it's very flippant, and we hear this across industry. Well, we're all certified as safety officers. Right, everybody's a safety officer, supposedly watching everybody's back. But, right. right. And that's the problem. Safety takes the back seat. And that was the problem here, too, is safety took the back seat because we had firefighters out all over this fire, not just Granite Mountain, without somebody watching their back at IC Command. And it's interesting. I mean, the, these, um, these transitions in fires from, from a three to a two or from a two to a one where they're, where they're changing teams, those transition times are, are usually just very um, confusing for all sorts of people. And if they had safety officers in the, at those um, time frames, in the beginning of those time frames, to kind of help people stay safe through those times, it'd be, it'd be worthwhile. Well, and it's the office, safety officer's job to know where the crews are, to know where everybody's at, right? Yeah, uh, hopefully. Okay. Hopefully the division would know that. Hopefully there's a lot of people. There. And on this fire, they lost Granite right. Mountain. Right. So the safety officer would have been would have known. Well, people did know, but yes. Yes, people. Right. Uh, you and I believe that people did know uh, fully, but they claim they didn't know. Right. Another issue I have is that nobody should move until a safety officer is there. And again, oh well, we're all safety officers. Oh, you mean you had that two-week course, which again, I don't agree with. I believe a safety officer is extremely important. Um, but if an IC commander can get to the fire, if crews can get to the fire, if money people can get to the fire, if portable toilets can get to a fire, a safety officer can get to a fire. And I believe that that's one of those key positions that nothing should happen until they get there. Yeah, makes sense. I'm, I know I'm going to get a lot of flack for that, but <laughs> I will hold true to it. So the safety officer, one's in Phoenix, ordered by the state not to come up. The other officer shows up at 4.15 and is trying to track people down. He's driving around the fire a little bit, trying to figure out, but the fire is chaos. Um, and, and so, you know, we've, we've got problems. The safety officer doesn't know what's going on either. So, yeah, another thing to talk about is uh, just specifically the fatality site where Granite Mountain ended up, where they died, it was just a terrible place. It was basically the worst place they could have been on that fire, unless they had been just a little higher up the slope. Um, it's just right in this bowl, right where it starts to get steep. Just a, just a terrible spot, just a funnel for this fire to come to. Um, and it says a lot about the crew too, because they didn't. Run, they were in that spot. They were stuck there. They, they were in a tight formation. They didn't run. They worked together until the last minute. And you know what? I think that shouldn't be looked over lightly. I have heard from 
military people. Uh, Andrew's older brother, TJ's in the military, he stated it. Um, that that's amazing. That that, when you go there, or when you see a picture, or when you see a diagram of how they were late, that that's highly unusual. Yeah, and some of those guys on that crew were some of the fittest, fastest dudes I've, I've ever met. And there, there are a few of them that there is no way that that fire would have caught them. Well, Andrew... But they didn't leave the other guys. They didn't leave their brothers. They stayed with them. That's right. Well, Andrew did CrossFit twice a day. And a lot of those guys yeah. were CrossFit, as you are, Doug. Um, you know, and so they were physically fit. Some of them could have run. Um, Eric Marsh, we believe, ran back to them. You know, this crew stayed together and like you said they watched out for their brothers they not one of them bailed yeah. not one and th i think that's important um and that they worked until the very last minute yeah you could hear chainsaws running they didn't have much option but yeah they were they were trying to kick its ass till the end yeah you have them calling on the radio granite mountain granite mountain seven granite mountain six, you know what i mean We've got them calling desperately on the radio, and you can hear chainsaws in the back. They're working. Um, you know, uh, I want to bring up a small story here. Two years after, in 2015, the families discovered that the sheriff's department had personal items from the crew um, from the fatality site, and we had to fight for those personal items. Originally, they said they didn't have them. We, our attorney helped us get them. We had a listing, and it was so frustrating because in that list of items were cell phones, GPS garments um, that we could have looked at. We could have, when the investigation, obviously the investigators didn't look at them either um, for the serious accident investigation report. And it, it, was a, it was just a bunch of odd, fickle items. And the way the fire blew through there, uh, we were with a family that when they received their box of items after we fought for it, um, that opened their items. And it looked like that crew member just took off his clothes, folded them up, and put them in the box. And when I opened up Andrew's box, um, there was very little left. The collar on his shirt, the buttons down his chest, the front of his pants. Um, there were, it, was, it, it was pretty rough. And there were also items that they didn't know who belonged to who, and I certainly hope those are treated well. But... This fatality site is an interesting spot. They stayed together. Um, you know, they didn't leave each other. And also, if you go to the fatality spot someday and you see how the crosses are placed, those crosses were placed at the crew member's head, so it lines down. So with Andrew, he was right next to Travis Carter, um, John Persen, um, and so when you see that, uh, that's where they died. It, it's, it's pretty um, emotional. Um, it's also, it's just super interesting, I think, Deborah, that there's GPSs and phones, perfect things to show locations where people were. 
and they just weren't used in the in this investigation and not even know not even talked about for years after and they weren't planning on talking about them at all we just happened to find out that the sheriff had these items and originally they denied that they did and but that's isn't that frustrating Doug isn't that how we dealt from day one from how this investigation went this is the frustration we dealt with. Yeah. Um, and it's, well, another thing about this location is it's relatively easy to get to. You were, you were talking about it the other day. Yeah, it's only 45 minutes from Prescott where we live. Um, it's right off, of, you can just walk to and through a neighborhood, hop a fence. Well, you're not supposed to right. do that, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> not supposed to, but it's easy to do. And, um, and take a look and see, and we were able to get to get in there and see this over and over and over. I don't know how many times Deborah and I went out there and looked around. Um, but I imagine other investigations that have been done, and how hard it would be for other families to, you know, if their if their crew or their, the people they love died in a different state, how would they ever get the opportunity we had, being so close, to ever know to ever know how bad an investigation was? How would they ever get to see the ground and? and think to themselves, what, what actually happened here? Right, it's not on the side of some you know, windswept mountain in the middle of nowhere. This is in a community, um, I don't know exactly how many miles, but about 45 minutes away, and you can certainly walk to it, yeah. um, and which we did. And throughout this whole time, I don't know how many times either Doug said it or I said it, it makes you question every other serious accident investigation report done by the Forest Service because this one is so bad. Something I'd like to bring up is after the crew had passed, um, there were people searching for them and a medic was helicoptered in and I want to say to this person, thank you. Not only was he helicoptered in and he was dropped in and he ran up to the guys the air was still so hot and the ground was so hot that he did not leave immediately. Um, he checked everyone to make sure if there was anybody that needed help, he would do that. But when he came out of um, this area, he had burned his esophagus all the way down into his chest um, from breathing the hot air. and. So I just want to thank this um, gentleman for being so diligent and making sure that guys were okay. Absolutely. Uh, or not okay. How do you say that? That, that they didn't need help. Yeah. Also, there was a, a bulldozer on that fire. They put line in, basically a, a road in to, in order to get the guys from the ranch, this bomb-proof safety zone ranch where they were heading right. back to the fatality site. They had to bulldoze in a, a, a way to get vehicles back there to, to take them out, um, to take the bodies out of that site. And in hindsight, it seems like that has some of the evidence that could have been gathered from this, from this fire was kind of bulldozed over. Um, so it was, it was a good thing to do, but it, it also ruined a little bit of evidence. Well, you know, I know that they were trying to get to them. I know that um, they were trying to be respectful, but like you said, in hindsight, in hindsight, they moved the bodies way too fast. 
but they were concerned about helicopter news, helicopters, and so forth. Um, but this bulldozer line that was put in covered up stops from the escape route that have been discovered. And if you are interested in seeing a diagram of where those stops are, Holly um, Neal did a great job. If you go to John McLean's website, she has a diagram there, and you can see exactly where these stops have been found. And basically from this point on, the, the bodies were never left alone. Um, they were always transported with the... Um, guards standing by, or firefighters standing by, someone was with them the whole time. Um, they were moved from that position by firefighters. Uh, I know quite a few Prescott firefighters and other firefighters that were down there that uh, had, that helped move the bodies. There were some Granite Mountain alumni. Yeah. Um, Wade Parker's father, uh, Danny Parker was out there, which was, you know, beautiful. Uh, Daryl Willis. Um, there were several people that were there. They did not want any one of the crew members to be alone, and they never were. Um, somebody rode with them in each of the vehicles down to Phoenix to the coroner. There were firefighters that stayed with them at the coroner um, until they were delivered to um, the families. They were never left alone all night, 24-7, which is um, beautiful for the firefighting community. And I don't know how hard, I mean, it had to be tough to be, one of the guys moving those bodies, I, I, I don't know how they did it. I, I can't fathom it, honestly. Um, and we'll talk a, a little bit later about some things that we discovered and, and again, know that happened um, as, as far as respect with the crew um, later on when we talk about how we heard. And I also want to share a story the guys died Sunday, June 30th. They had worked the Dosey Fire, which was a fire outside of Prescott, um, a couple of weeks before and so forth. And from what I was told, I had um, one of the crew's wives, I'm sorry, one of the crew's widows come up and tell me that the Tuesday prior to this Sunday, uh, they were out putting down a spot fire from the Dosey Fire. Uh, it flared up. And so they went out to put it down. And on the way back, it was Clayton Witted, and he was a youth pastor. And he, start, he just felt really heavy that they should talk about, they do dangerous jobs, um, do they believe in heaven, you know, spiritual things. And every single one of these crew members, they got back to the station, and instead of going home, they stayed at the station for two hours and talked about, is there a God? Um, do they believe in heaven? Um, you know, what they thought about their spiritual thing. They ended up praying together. And honestly, when she first told me that story, it really brought peace to my heart. And then I thought, oh, you know what? She knows I'm a Christian. She knows Andrew's a Christian. You know, maybe she was just telling me that to be kind. And so then I um, got a hold of uh, the lookout and asked him, please tell me the truth. Did this event happen on that Tuesday evening? And he said, yes, Deborah, we all did. We all prayed. We all talked about heaven. And then I thought, holy mackerel, here I've kind of cornered him. What's he supposed to say? No, Deborah, that's really a lie. And so I talked to um, Daryl Willis and asked Daryl, I said, please tell me the truth. Um, don't fib. You know, I, I can take it. And he said, no that this crew 
on the Tuesday before um, passing away, they talked about heaven, they talked about spirituality, they, they prayed together. This crew was unique, I believe, and special, and I, I just think that that story needs to get out, that um, for some reason they were brought back and God made sure that they were cared for spiritually, and I think that's a big deal. Good crew. Well, um, Doug, how did you hear? You know, this is about the time families were getting notified. So how did you hear what happened? Um, I was on vacation with my family in Louisiana. And, uh, you know, miles and miles away. And uh, just... Uh, I think it came across the news there first, and actually people were calling me, friends who knew that I uh, would fill on that crew, just kind of making sure that I, that I wasn't filling with them that day. Um, and it was just baffling to me because first I heard that a crew had crew had perished, and there was you know in my mind there's no way it was Granite Mountain, couldn't be those guys, you know they're too good at their job too, there's no way, and. Um, and as you know, you get more and more calls, and uh, it, it just kind of hits you what's what's happening and what's going on. And there was really nothing I could do except sit there and and uh, hear it. And uh, it just put a something you can't really describe a, a, the the whole of anguish that it puts it uh, on you. I, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but I just, I basically wandered the city um, that night for a few hours just in disbelief and crying and kind of hoping for a fist fight that never came. You know, um, you and I have talked about that shared feeling of that kind of r ripping or that hole in your heart. Um, I was at a performance in Prescott uh, with a friend's wife was singing at a local church, actually. And so we had gone to the performance and I left my phone in the car. And when we came out to the car, I'm not one to get a bunch of texts. That's just not um, me. And my phone was just full of texting and it was ringing at the same time. And it was a friend and I answered. She said, how is it, have you heard from Andrew? And I said, well, no. And she realized I didn't know anything. And so she said, I think you should call Julianne. Well, you know, I'm, my phone's blowing up, call Julianne. So I quickly, my husband Jerry and I got in the car and we were pulling out of the parking lot and I had called Julianne's phone, Andrew's um, widow. And her father had answered the phone, and I said, how is Andrew? And is Andrew okay? And all he said was no. And I knew. It was, as soon as he said that, I could feel it was a literal ripping of my heart. I could hear it inside. I could feel it ripping. And then all of a sudden, I could hear someone screaming. And then I came to realization it was me. I was the one screaming. And my husband Jerry is, you know, grabbing my arm. What's going on? What's going on? And I said, 
get to Andrew and Julianne's house, and I felt this deep um, need to talk to Andrew's older brother, TJ. I just needed to hear his voice, and I immediately called Andrew, and I think I said, I think Andrew's dead, and we talked, and I told him I needed him, and he said he'd be here tomorrow. Um, we pulled down, we weren't far from where Andrew and Julianne lived, we pulled down the street and we could see emergency vehicles. And, you know, I never understood, I always thought, oh, how sad when people lose a loved one and I'd lost my mother and father and there is something about losing someone so intimate to you, a spouse or a child you become part of a club you don't want to be part of. And this town was devastated. A lot of these crews had grown up here. Um, a, the, the whole town was devastated. And it was, it was rough. It was rough. And so then all of a sudden, I call it the Granite Mountain Machine kind of took over. We were um, asked to go to the middle school, and we went to the middle school, and events went quickly at that point. The middle school where the families were asked to go to uh, is right downtown in Prescott, uh, Prescott Mile High Middle School. And all of the families, you have to remember, I mean, this is 19 families. Um, that a lot of people, we're not talking one, one family is being told. So they had brought us all to this venue to hear, get information, to um, find out what was going on, to find out what was happening, you know, to talk to us. And I will tell you, we are not going to make reference to everything that happened with the families. That is a whole other um, podcast series. That's a whole other event. There was so much that happened with the families and with Granite Mount Hotshot alumni and with Prescott Fire and all of that. Um, we'll make references to it, but this podcast is about what happened to the crew and our investigation and what we discovered about what happened on June 30th not about what happened really to us during those events, during the memorials and all that. So we will make some references, but this is not about that. So um, let's just get back to the investigations and what we know. Let's just drive back into there. That sounds good. Um, ADOSH, we've talked about the Serious Accident Investigation Report, and we talk about the ADOSH report. And... You know, I want to say one thing. ADOSH interviews were fantastic. They were much more detailed. They interviewed individuals, not groups. Um, they asked pertinent questions. Um, their interviews were fantastic. But there were some Forest Service employees that they weren't allowed to interview. Um, and I think that's a travesty. But I, as I thanked the uh, medic, I want to thank the investigators for the ADOSH report. At the time, the family said we're, we were going through litigation. Um, we were kind of beaten up by the state. We were beaten up by 
the, the loss of our loved ones, of having to fight. And Adosh wanted to fight the um, Arizona State Forestry. They wanted to, um, they have some great, they had some great citations in their report. And honestly, the families were asked to go to them and ask them not to. And I was part of that. And I went with the group and I, I said to them, please stop, please just let it be. And I apologize for that. I wish now, if hindsight, if I could step back, I would say no. I would love to see ADOSH have fought the Arizona Forestry Department um, because their report is so, it's, it's so much better. Is it 100%? It's not, but but it's so much better. And so, Adosh, please accept my apology. Um, your investigation was fantastic. Yeah, and these are the, some of the things that uh, Adosh has said from their investigation. It's also things that we uh, agreed with or have been saying from the beginning of ours. IC3 did not adequately brief the incoming resources, and also the IC2 did not provide an adequate briefing either. Um, that both of the, both of them um, had failed and were confusing. There needs um, there needs to be complete briefings. And that that's something that Adosh that's a citation. That's what they said. They said that the briefings were inaccurate, um, inadequate, and that's something that needs to change. And we've talked about that. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the briefings they had time. They've had days to prep this fire to have better briefings, but it just wasn't happening, you know. Yeah. Uh, they fa failed to give a clear management direction. Um, the complexity analysis was not done until, until June 30th, late in the afternoon. And I'm sure that our people that have listened to episodes um, previously got sick of hearing us saying, and a complexity analysis was not done, and a complexity analysis was not done. Um, that's appalling. Yeah, and there's delays on ordering resources, delays on um, times when they should be ordering and they're not, just, just all kinds of delays in there. Well, there's that one delay where the um, safety officer doesn't show up. There's the delay where the um, VLAP was ordered but didn't. Yeah. Um, just going, you know, there were people that wanted it to go to type 1. But that was delayed. There was a delay even getting it to type two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and orders lost right and left. Yeah. Any tactic that was discussed was never completed, completely followed through. And no one told Granite Mountain of any changes in tactics. I don't know if no one told them, but at least they weren't included in those changes in tactics. Right. At least. Well, again, they were out, uh, the only ones really out on the fire line. Right. Orders went unf unfilled. So a lot of the stuff they were ordering for this fire just never came or happened. Um, the lack of communication, um, Granite Mountain being put on uh, uh, the, the air attack, putting out their fires is an example of that. They didn't know the purpose or the tactics of what they were doing, what they were burning. Um, Marsh and Division Zulu were not at any of the briefings. They were at their first briefing of the day, but there were other, other briefings throughout the day that they were not a part of. And I don't know, that's pretty typical in a fire, but that's one of the citations ADOSH has, right? Yes. And um, Division Zulu and Marsh were never at the same briefing, ever. Right. And they were, ne they were unclear on where the 
where their um, division breaks were. We already talked about that. Um, planning and field operations gave no direction to Granite Mountain or Blue Ridge. They let them kind of figure it out on their own, which is a, I mean, that's the way superintendents like it. Yeah. <laughs> they like to, to make their own plan. It just gets things done easier. But it, they've got to have the direction of what, what they want completed, you know. Well, and if anybody really wants to know these citations that we're kind of making references to, um, it's in, if they go to our site, we have, they can just click and go there, or they can just type in ADOSH Yarnell Hill Fire, and you can read the citations themselves. And the citation is kind of broken down into willful, serious, or strong. And, um, you know, that's the strongest, these fines and these citations were the strongest citations that ADOSH has ever issued. Wow. And all the radio communication stuff, too. They need better training, better radios, panic buttons, possibly. Um, well, you know, that was something TJ brought up. Um, all of us were on the staff ride. We took a staff ride. And that was one of the things, being in the military... He said, you know, radio training, radio training, radio training. And then um, Jerry and I one time went and sat in a class of hotshots getting trained on their radio, and they kind of paid attention and kind of didn't. And the um, person that was teaching them was just kind of taught, you know, wah, 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 wah. Like, it was just um, habit. It was something, they a hoop they had to jump through. And... You know, that radio could be your life. And so, but I I believe that the radios are pieces. The radio should be thrown with the serious accident investigation report in a trash can. Well, I don't, I, I like those radios. I, <laughs> we don't always agree. That's right. <laughs> but um, I do think the training would be awesome. But you see like um, Granite Mountain and Blue Ridge, those guys... Blue Ridge was listening to every channel on there. Mm -hmm. They obviously are well-trained on those radios. Mm -hmm. uh, Granite Mountain, when I worked for them, was the same way. I'm not sure, exactly sure how they were that day because they did have some radio issues at some point when they were trying to get through channels, but it sounds like they were trying to get on channels that nobody else was answering them on more than right. they, were on the wrong, they weren't on the wrong channels and just nobody was answering them. Well, I still think it's bizarre that the radios weren't working, but cell phones were. Yeah. That's... Yeah. You know, and that's a lot of them went to their cell phone to talk to each other. Right. And then that possible weather um, forecast trigger points. Adosh brings it up. It wasn't distributed. People didn't know about it. Yeah. There are tons of podcasts out there. You have options. Penny University is truly a podcast with value, and we strive to share great true stories. Some are plain fun, some might bring a tear to your eye, and maybe even make you a little angry. Listen to them all. Please listen, like, and share. Head over to our Facebook page, see who we are. And thanks for listening. You are listening to Penny University, a podcast with value. We hope you find this series captivating. If you would like to share your two cents, please contact either Deborah or Doug at pennyuniversity at protonmail.com. Thank you, and now back to our podcast. So it seems to me like there's all sorts of things that we could be learning um, that the SAIR report's not 
you know, they had their, their problems with what they said was issues with the fire, but they don't seem to be the same ones that we're seeing. All these things that could be examined and learned from by other firefighters if there was a truthful look taken. You know, some of those things are like the confusion during a transition in a management team, going from one team to the next. There's always been a history of confusion of that, but they're not bringing any of that up in this report. They don't, yeah, they don't even acknowledge it. Yeah. Confusions due to um, people filling command positions or division positions that aren't, they're, they're positions that they need on the fire, so they're taking someone from another job and putting them in that position, like Eric to the right. division Right, so they take one, put it in another, and then they're shorthanded. Right. So, yeah. One crew shorthanded, or there's confusion then, you know, who, Who's what? which position are they in, right? Mm -hmm. Just an eye, just something to think about, you know, that they're, they're not putting in that right. report. Mechanical problems with the radios, instead of saying, you know, they said there was communication problems, but they're talking about the times that they weren't talking with Granite Mountain, not actual mechanical problem issues they're having with the radios, not transmitting, not receiving, things like that. But everybody said there was. Right. Uh, right. You know, crews that survived, groups that survived, right. yes. And the weather, weather forecast trigger points. The, the uh, other report talked about things like that. Right, but, the ADOSH report, right. yes. And if there had been, there could be a different story here, but there was not any kind of weather forecast trigger point. Um, poor briefings, that was never brought up in the uh, SAIR report. There's also um, one thing at the fatality site, when I went there, we noticed that the SIG bottles, which are the fuel bottles that Granite Mountain carried to, to, for their chainsaws, mm -hmm. there's bar oil and um, chainsaw fuel in those, and we would divide them up into uh, smaller bottles instead of carrying giant fuel cans that, that we would have in our packs. How, so how many people would have these basically cans of gas yeah, in their packs? Everybody had one. Okay, Except so for probably Eric. Everybody else would have uh, at least one can of, of fuel and some would have one, one of oil. Okay. So when we, seeing that fatality site, these bottles were all scattered around like they had vented and blown fuel all over these guys probably during that uh, time. So that's an issue that wasn't never brought up as a, as a safety issue. Should these guys be having that kind of fuel on them? Is that, is that common? Do crews carry cans of fuel in their backpacks like that? Yeah. I mean, okay. it, when, when I was on cruise, it was really common. I'm sure it was then because they still had them. That was the way they were carrying it. I, right. They have, other, they have other ways of doing it, like a Dolmar can, which is just a, a it's like a bigger can. So mm -hmm. then one person would have it. And maybe, you know, that could be slung further or kept further away in that scenario. And well, when you were at the fatality site, and that's something we're going to be talking about um, next time, um, how a bunch of alumni went out. They took a bunch of alumni out to clean up the site, and we'll be discussing that later. But when you were at the site, you were saying that these SIG bottles were thrown all over the site. Was it the guys like throwing it away from them, do you think? Or were they just so busy that they were still in their backpacks or using them? It looked like it was more like they were, they were just tossed with their backpacks. Okay. So near, their, near them. Right. Because they, they were, they weren't in the backpacks anymore, but they were in the area where they were, or they were only 10, 20 feet away from it. You know, you think as you far can, as you think you can throw it. You, you could have thrown it a lot further right. if it was just the bottle and you were throwing it, I think. But we also have to remember the, the fuels that they were in. I mean, these were um, fuels that were six, four to six feet high. So, you know, maybe they did throw, but they were caught 
in scrub oak or mesquite. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. it's not moonscaped like it is now with the little bushes. Yeah. Um, so I never thought about that, Doug. So when the fire hit, those are explosives. Yeah. So those were blown up, basically. basically. Yeah. Once they vented, they're just spraying fuel. Yeah. So they're spraying fuel over everything. Yeah, over everything so right. making it hotter, yeah. even. Right. Ugh. Um, so we kind of got off track there, but yeah. um, also they're, they're, they never talk about a burning checklist because obviously they never, in that report, they never said there was any burning right. going on. Really. Right. So, um, but a checklist, you know, you need to have a, a, a burn that you're planning on doing should be anchored. It should be communicated with everybody around you. If there's a weather, it should be weather forecast dependent. If you mm -hmm. have some kind of crazy front that's going to blow 50 mile an hour winds, why in the world would you put more fire on the ground? In that scenario. Well, again, there are those people in this that claim that weather report what weather reports did go out. Crews claim that they never received it. It's not like we're pulling that comment out of the air. Right. Um, but it, you're correct. So you know. Well, and it, and usually, if you're doing a burn, you would call in. You would you would give them what your weather is. You would have someone spin the weather. Yes. You would call that in, and then they would report back to you a forecast for that specific weather that you right. gave them. And that was never discussed, even though we know um, that fire was put on the ground somewhere around Sesame Street. How it was put on the ground, we are not sure, but no weather report was brought, called into IC command, or it was never t discussed. Right, and it wasn't for any of the other burns that they were doing throughout the day in yes. other portions of the fire. So yes, was, so they were, there were other fires that the SAIR never even acknowledged was happening, never questioned, even though that some of the people they interviewed brought it up, and we never read that they did uh, weather right. on those, okay? Right. And, you know, just the thought, I've always had a problem with, they push these burns off until the peak burning period, and then they expect you to, to do some magical burn that's going to save something or stop a fire, you know? Right. It's just, a, you know, especially if there's forecasted bad weather or forecasted worse weather, or changing winds or anything mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Why wait until the peak burning period to do that burn? That's a legit question, Doug. Yeah. I don't know, why is that? Right. And, it's, <laughs> and it's never even acknowledged. Right. It's never discussed, yeah. nothing. Not a lesson learned even. But it's, you know, in that when, you're around structure, when you're not around structures and you're out in the middle of nowhere and you've got a line and then all of a sudden they want you to burn it in the middle of the day, you're not gonna, if you lose the burn, it's not gonna do anything but burn up more country. Right. You don't really, you're used to it. That's what you do. That's, you're upset because you've got more work now. And right. You could have done the burn early in the morning or late in the evening, and it would have been fine. But they wait till the last minute, and then they will expect you to be successful. But see, that's something, again, that needs to be re-looked at because we are in such a wildland-urban interface now. How are we going to deal with these? Right. Those old rules don't work. Yeah. Ugh. Anything else from those points, Doug? That, that I mean, I'm sure out? there's other stuff, but that was just stuff that was... Uh, on the that, front of my mind. That yeah. you brought up. Well, one of the things I like to bring up is I am so sick and tired of hearing about how Granite Mountain didn't follow the 1018s, the 1018s, the 1018s. And I, I, personally, I'm sick of it. And so I was so thrilled when ADOSH, in their report, acknowledged them. And they acknowledged the 10 standard fighting orders. And I just love it. Number one, how um, of those 10 is to keep informed on fire weather conditions and forecast. Now, um, we know that they weren't 
informing everyone. It was icy command that wasn't informing everyone of the weather. It wasn't Granite Mountain. It was planning ops. Um, they did brief Granite Mountain on some of the weather conditions, but not the final one. We know that. Number two, know what your fire is doing at all times. And Granite Mountain did. They were positioned on the ridge where they had an unobstructed uh, view of the fire movement the whole time. They had crew lookout all day long who they communicated with. Um, they, when they moved, they always had those pre-established trigger points. So Granite Mountain did do right. um, number two. Number three, base all actions on current and expected behavior of uh, fire. And Granite Mountain did base every single action they did that day on fire behavior that they observed. Um, four, identify escape routes and safety zones and make them known. And they did. Granite Mountain initially had multiple escape routes, including walking back to their vehicles until their, until their vehicles were moved. A second escape route was to travel south along the ridge towards Boulder Spring Ranch, that bomb-proof safety zone. Yep. Number three was the option of turning west to go over the ridge and down. The fourth option they had um, would have been to continue down the two-track road um, towards Boulder Springs. And then the five is the escape route that Eric Marsh had made right. from the two-track road all the way down to the ranch. So they had five escape routes. So they took the, care of those. The bummer is the one that they picked. Once you picked that one, the others were kind of lost. Yes, you're, yeah. you're kind of set. Yeah. Absolutely. Number five, post lookouts whenever there is possible danger. They did. They, they had eyes on the fire. They had a lookout on the fire. And Eric Marsh, when they descended into the bowl, had eyes on the fire the whole time. So they were never once. Now the crew did lose sight of the fire when they descended, but that's when Eric had eyes right. on the fire. Right. Um, six, be alert, keep calm, think clearly, act decisively. And I am going to read the quote from Adosh here because I think it is so beautiful. So it's not a mother, you know, <laughs> trying to say, oh, they knew. This is a quote from Adosh. Evidence shows that even up to and including their last radio transmission, Eric Marsh and Granite Mountain were alert, unimaginably calm, thinking clearly, and taking decisive actions, unquote. I think that is beautiful. Seven, maintain prompt communications with their forces, your supervisor, and adjoining forces. You know, Granite Mountain maintained communication with everyone. Now, everyone else, IC Command, did not maintain communication with them. Right. And they supposedly, and they aren't even admitting to the communications that they had with them. They're right. Oh, supposedly there's a half hour of radio silence, right? So they're lying about that. Marsh had some difficulty maintaining communications with planning ops, but... Um, you know, they tried their best. Granite Mountain tried notifying their supervisors, but they had a hard time getting a hold of anybody. They, they told everybody where they were at. Um, you know, so planning ops was ineffectively communicating tactics all day. They were confused with their forces. They did not communicate with um, uh, air at all very well. Um, and there is evidence, again, that Eric Marsh and Division Zulu you know, couldn't agree on a division break. Right. So that's kind of, huh. 
Then eight is give clear direction, give clear instructions and ensure that they are understood. And in the ADOSH report, they, they directly say that the Arizona State Forestry Division failed to document and select suppression alternatives, um, provide clear written direction and any form of a declaration, a let, anything, no marching orders, um, that the planning ops did not get aviation resources and ground resources on the same tactical plan, that Granite Mountain was you know, trying to do burnouts, but it was con constantly being put out, um, that there were structure protection groups were using dozers to construct lines near Yarnell, but aviation resources choose to drop retardant on everything, that it was complete confusion on incident command's part, not on Granite Mountain. Then nine, maintain control of your forces at all times. Again, I want to quote the um, ADOSH report here. Quote, Granite Mountain died together in a very small space. No one ran. This is a testament to the um, ex exceptional leadership abilities of Granite Mountain's superintendent and captain, unquote. And I fully agree. Fully, fully agree. And then 10, fight fire aggressively, having provided for fire um, for safety first. They state the Arizona State Fire um, Forestry Division had a st strategy of full, I'm sorry, I have to say that again. The Arizona State um, Forestry Division had a strategy of full suppression using the tactic of a direct attack. When that tactic failed, the managers of the fire did not reassess the strategies or tactics. So it was Granite Mountain followed the 10 and 18s. IC Command did not. And I think that's really important. ADOSH sees it. We know it. The SAIR ignored it. Yeah. Okay, well, you know, we've been talking about the Serious Accident Investigation Report and how awful it is and how I think it needs to be thrown away. But, you know, at first, the families, and I believe the alumni, and the world, actually, the news, everybody, was waiting for the serious accident investigation report. We were hoping that it would give us answers because we were desperately trying to figure out what happened and know what happened to our loved ones. And then um, the confusion about how they were going to release it. I know for the families, um, they didn't know how they were going to release it to the families. And it went back and forth. It was at one point they were going to bring it to our homes individually. And then they decided that wasn't going to be the thing. And it just was, then they were going to deliver it to the families that were out of the state. It, it, was, it became a confusion. They just didn't know how they were going to give it to us. Mm. And then it was finally decided upon that they were going to bring all of the families back to the middle school. They were going to um, give us, uh, they picked the day, they picked the time. All the families show up at the uh, Prescott Mile High Middle School. They had it up in the library. We as a family go walking up the library stairs. And as you were walking in the door, they handed you the uh, serious accident investigation report. We walked in, we sat down, and of course everybody is just flipping through the pages. We're trying to read it, we're trying to look, we're trying to figure, you know, quickly do it. They sit us down, they divided they had the families in the middle school. They had the press over at the high school, which made sense, keep the press away. Right. 
Then they had alumni and firefighters. I believe they had them in the cafeteria. I'm not sure where they were, but for some some reason... They I wanted made, us all divided. Right. Yeah. yeah. They, they did not want the firefighters, the alumni, and the families together. They right. wanted us divided. But you ended up in there, Doug. I did, somehow. I don't, I don't know. Well, it was meant to be. I don't know the be. reason, but uh, yeah, it worked out. Yeah. Um, so all of the families are sitting together. We just get this report handed to us. We're trying to look through it. Um, the two investigators and the state forester got up in front, and they um, said, we, will, uh, we have about an hour to an hour and 15-minute presentation. Um, then we have to be over at the high school to release it to the press. And, you know, families are looking through the serious accident investigation right. report. And then they said, but we have a 21-minute video prepared for you, and we'll answer questions afterwards. So we have an hour and 15 minutes or so. 21 minutes of that is taken up. Well, after we sit down, after we're given the investigation report, so a little bit more time than that. Then we have to sit and watch this 21-minute video. And then let's open it up for questions. It was awful. Um, families, you know, some families immediately got up and walked out. They didn't want to be there for the questions because it was hard. And then there was no control. There was no um, guidance. I remember a lot of questions being asked about the radios. And they just let them, I felt that they were letting us burn time. Seemed that way. When I look back at it now. Yeah. yeah. They, you know, they were asking questions about the radios, and they didn't specifically answer. They just kind of let the you know, answers bounce back and forth. And I remember getting so frustrated and so angry, and um, it was just not a good scene. And finally, people were starting to get angry, and then it was called off. Then it was, okay, Time we're done. <laughs> yeah. We're done. And they left. And I remember leaving the library so angry and so devastated because I was more confused, more lost. Um, I felt like I knew less. Yeah. I, I felt like I was robbed of truth or I, I don't know. I was, you know, the families are still dealing in shock. And as we came out of the library, I see uh, my oldest son, TJ, talking to you. You were in uniform. And I thought, who is that? And walked over, uh, Jerry and I walked over, and uh, you introduced yourself. And I, I can't remember your specific words, but it was, you're asking the right questions. Because at one point, Julianne and I started just bombarding them with questions. And they just stared at us. They wouldn't answer us. And I remember you saying, you guys are asking the right questions. And that's where you and I started um, you know, when we would see each other at yeah. different activities. So, yeah, it was a terrible, I mean, you, you go there expecting to hear some answers and all you get is more confusion and, and then just to leave it like that with everybody. It was crazy. It was just a crazy scene. I couldn't, I mean, it doesn't make any sense and I'm sure it never will. But the way they did it that way. And Well, um, how, how do you, how do you, hand out this fluff piece. Right, yeah, you're right. And stand up in front of 19 families who have lost their loved ones, play a video, 
I mean, I, if I was those investigators and if I was the yeah. state forester, I would want to run thinking we got to get out of here before. Yeah. I mean, basically your, your report basically says these guys died. It's a shame. Nobody's at fault. What a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> basically. That's right. And don't ask us any questions. Let us get the heck out of here. Yeah, that's what it felt like. Yes. Yeah. Well, you, I know, were frustrated. Yeah, and I know, I mean, after that, I was, I was, you know, once you have that report, I just felt, I just, there had to be more to this. And I remember having problems reading that report and seeing how many people were interviewed and how their interviews didn't match up. And there's no other differences in their accounts and there's no further questioning on any of that, you know. As you read the, as you read those deeper into that, into that SAR report, you, you just see all these conflicting accounts that there's no extra questions about it to see how things are, were real or how they added up, you know. All the photos from the investigators from the SAR were all of the deployment site or from the air. So it seemed like all they did was fly around the fire a bunch of times, go to the deployment site and take a bunch of pictures. No pictures of what Granite Mountain was doing all day. No pictures of where the fire came from. No pictures of other areas on the fire where, where things, other things could happen. Um, it just seemed like it wasn't really, as, the more I looked into it, the more I realized there just wasn't an investigation. Well, you know, um, TJ flew out from Clarksville, Tennessee, where he's stationed in the military when they released this report. I wanted him with us. I didn't want him to be alone. And honestly, we needed to be together. This, you know, all families needed to be together for this. And I was sitting there and I had Julianne on one side and TJ on the other. Jerry was right there with us. And, uh, you know, TJ's a pretty quiet guy. And I could see him looking through the investigation report and he was getting, you know, he was sitting in his seat getting straighter and straighter and straighter. And I know that that means I'm getting angrier and <laughs> angrier and angrier. And I'm looking through this and Julianne's looking through this and Julianne and I are talking. And I remember finally holding it up in the air and saying, excuse me, this is bullshit. This is, this is out and out bullshit. And I remember TJ kind of shaking like, oh my gosh, I've lost control of my mother. But <laughs> that's what it was like. Everybody wanted to find those answers. And it, from the photographs to just reading it, it is, it's high school journalism. It's, yeah. it, does, it didn't give us a single answer. A single answer and then what else did they do I mean then they took alumni out to the fatality site right well I can't say it was necessarily the SAR investigators. no no but, but the our, investigators our had overhead, to approve it our overhead asked if we would go out there or they gave us an opportunity now I'm not sure if it was necessarily a, I, I wouldn't say I would not want to wanted to do this but they sent us out there to basically, we ended up gathering evidence and figuring out whose pack was whose so we could ID um, whose pack was where. Okay, so I want, to get the, I want to get this straight because I remember the first time you told me this. After the investigation was done, yes. which was what, a couple of weeks? They take alumni out to the fatality site and ask you guys to identify items that were remaining. Right. And there was so much stuff there. 
There was, I mean, packs, saws lined up, SIG bottles everywhere like we talked about earlier, um, water jugs, uh, water, uh, the, the banjo canteen. I mean, there was just stuff everywhere. And it was just another thing, like you imagine that investigators are out there in the, in the TV shows, you know, they're combing through everything, you know, nothing, nothing's left unturned. And yet we go out there and these packs haven't even been touched or moved or nothing's been gone through, nothing's been done here, you know. Um, and as the more, we, the more we went through there, finding stuff, we, we noticed there's like little rivets all over there. What, what are these? And then we noticed those were the, the, what was left of boots, where the boot strings went right, through. Right, right. And just imagining that the boots were burned up so bad that those, all those rivets just fell out. Mm-hmm. And then we started finding um, actually bones in that, in that area. We realized we were digging through our friend's bones. And um, it was just a terrible realization, you know, when you get to that point. And, um, and then thinking they were, they're wanting us out there to, to identify this stuff and to clean it up so that families can come out and find us. And our time is running out now. Right. And we're starting to find bones of our friends and expecting their families to come out and knowing that they're probably going to be out here digging through this, finding bones of their loved Absolutely, ones. Absolutely, yes. was just a really, you know, horrifying thought to a lot of us. And we uh, brought that up to the, our chain of command and they told us there really wasn't any option. If we didn't want you guys to find bones or family members to find bones out there, then we just needed to do a better job of finding them ourselves. And you know what? That's insanity. That is absolute insanity. It shows, again, the disgusting, um, lackadaisical investigation. You know, I have said from day one, I wish the NTSB would come in and do these. If, if, an, if a plane went down or if a civilian was hurt, this investigation would have been completely different. Right. But because it was a wildland crew, it was treated terribly. It was investigate thyself, cover thyself butt up and get it done in 30 days and appease the world and don't place blame. Yep. And it was what, so long afterwards that I hear that, that you guys were sent out there to do that. Don't even think about the emotional toil that alumni were put through. I mean, that's like sending family members out there to do that. These are your brothers. These are people you care about. That, I, I'm sorry, that just still blows my mind. But then that's backed up with, here, you guys do all of that before the families go out there because the families were requesting. I remember the day we requested in the auditorium, we want to go out to the fatality site, and they stared at us like, you want to go out there? We're like, yeah, we want to go out there. So they take us out there, and we go walking through this moonscape and they tell us, you know, if you see something, you're, you're welcome to take it. And, I, you know, we're all in shock. I remember picking up, um, you know, watch batteries, um, those type of little batteries, um, plastic clips, I assume were from backpacks. Yeah. Um, Rocks and you know again, the alumni are in shock. We're in shock. It took a couple years later, and I thought, 
hot dang it, we're, we were gathering evidence. We were cleaning up their mess of investigation for them. They used the alumni and family members to destroy the evidence site. That makes them even lower in my eyes. I just, I, it just makes me so mad. And I remember walking out there, the very first time I walked out there, and making a promise to Andrew. I could feel that something was wrong. I knew something was wrong. This crew knew fire. Andrew knew fire. Um, what drove them into that location? And like you had said earlier, I don't care if you're on the two-track road or if you're at the fatality site, you're shaking your head. Yeah, there's no reason. It's, it's baffling. The worst spot they could possibly be. <laughs> yes. And why are they there? And you look around and it's... And then you see family members gathering up pieces of radios. And, 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 and I was just, this is out and out insanely wrong. And I remember making that promise to Andrew that I would do whatever I can to, to find out what happened. That was the first time we went out. You know, the second time, it, it, it was just devastating how they treated the fatality site. It's, it's been treated with more respect since. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I just, I, it was after that visit to the fatality site, I came home and I wrote up an email and I pulled up every wildland fire crew across the nation and I sent an email to every captain and every supervisor asking if you know anything about this fire, if you have any information, if you can tell me anything, build a fake email and send it to me. Please send me information. And I was starting to get information in. Um, people were starting to call me. People were starting to contact our family, Julianne. Um, that's when you and I started really talking about what was happening. And then all of a sudden, I get sent to me um, an email from director Tom Harbour at the time. And he was the um, national. He was in Washington, D.C. Mm. And he sent an email out to every wildland crew and every wildland crew member that said, do not talk to me. Wow. That I was, you know, this poor mother which I was, right? I still am. But this poor mother's in shock. Don't speak to her. And it was sent to me. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, you know, Doug, I, I know how devastating going out to the fatality site was for you. Um, I haven't talked to other alumni that were there. I'm sure that ride back from the fatality site to the station was. You know, I don't remember much about it, but I do. When I, when I go out there, I don't. Hanging out at the fatality site or being at the fatality site isn't. I go out there to see what, what the work they did. Right. During the day or the hike they did or the, the paths that they went this way or that way or mm -hmm. what work was being done. It's more seems more interesting to me, you know, the fatality site is, is, a, is a bad place, 
but something brought the fire to that point, you know? Right. Well, um, I know that this episode is getting pretty long, and so let's bring some closure uh, to this episode. Um, the next episode is going to be really where, you know, we're on the fire now. We've been, our, well, my, I won't speak for you, even though I do it a lot, <laughs> poor Doug. My world was rocked when I received this piece of junk called the Serious Accident Investigation Report. Um, and now we are looking into things ourselves. We're, we're driving out there. Every time I asked Doug, I need to go to Yarnell, um, he drove us out there and was with us. So I think that that's where we need to pick up the next episode. Sounds good. Okay. Um, on a side note, I want to thank everybody that's been listening. Um, your comments, again, have been wonderful. Um, and I want to throw a thank you out to those people in Wales. We are now being listened to around the world, which is <laughs> blowing my mind. We have people listening to us in Canada, um, people in Newfoundland, <laughs> which is shocking to me. But a shout out to those of you in Wales. That's my ancestry. So um, thank you. Um, thank you for listening. And if you have um, any questions or comments, please uh, let us know. Um, thanks, Doug. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to Penny University's presentation, Our Investigation, Our Truth. Please join us again for the next episode in the Scripping series. We hope you find us a podcast with value. Until next episode, be strong, wise, and safe. <music>